What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Bob Dylan is arguably the greatest songwriter of all time. Now, I went online and I checked source after source after source after source. And every source that you could ever imagine has him down as the greatest songwriter of modern history. Certainly, if you listen to his music, you'll know that he was not the greatest singer to ever enter the scene of Hollywood. But the songs, for some reason, that he was given have touched the hearts of people all over the globe. Aretha Franklin is known for being the best singer of all time. You might have heard some of her songs. R-E-S-P-E-C-T is one of her best songs that you've probably heard. Michael Jackson goes down for being not just famous, but also the greatest musician of all time. Beethoven is without dispute and without question the greatest and best composer the world has ever seen. His touch when he was tickling those ivories and keys is completely unmatched. There's no doubt in my mind that the greatest athlete ever to set foot on this earth is Michael Jordan. In fact, if you were to just think about sports without Michael Jordan, not just basketball, but sports in general, they would not be what they are today. Athletes would not be elevated as high as they are today as celebrities and and, uh, figures of our world if it were not for the life and influence of Michael Jordan. Athletes would not be multimillionaires today if it was not for Michael Jordan. I found it interesting that, that The Rock, or Dwayne Johnson, is known, you can Google it yourself, as the famous person in the world today. The most famous person. Who would have thought that the wrestler-turned-actor would go down in modern history as the most famous lifetime in existence? Muhammad, that is the prophet of Islam, is argued by many to be the most powerful and most influential person to have ever lived. I thought it was interesting as I was doing some of this research, did you know that McDonald's doesn't own the most real estate in the world? Did you know that, that, that Warren Buffett doesn't own the most real estate in the world? Actually, the Roman Catholic Church owns the most real estate. You know how many acres they own? Well, I wrote it down for you. 172.9 million acres. They own the most real estate in the world. The best inventor of all time, Thomas Edison. Albert Einstein is the greatest scientist. The greatest business, perhaps, is Apple Incorporated. Outside the Bible and the Quran, Harry Potter is the most read book or series of all time. Now, with all that in mind, I certainly didn't come here today to to share all these facts and statistics with you, but I did come here today to tell you about the undisputed, undefeated champion of the world. And no, I'm not talking about Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson. I'm talking about the one and only Jesus Christ. 
I might lose some friends and may not gain influence over this, but I believe Jesus Christ is the greatest figure of all time. No individual, even the ones that I mentioned previously, compare to the influence and power that his life had on this earth. For 33 years, he demonstrated to the entire world and to every generation after him what it looks like to live a perfect life. He was sinless in thought, faultless in word, and blameless in deed. He was the friend of sinners, the comforter of comforters, and the consolation of his followers. He was the fulfillment of prophecy, the redeemer of lost humanity, and the lover of the guilty. He healed lepers. He forgave sinners, and he helps transgressors. He was the enemy of the Pharisees, the target of the Sadducees, and the foe of Satan's army. He brought hope to those who knew no hope. He gives peace to those who have no peace, and he brings love to those who have never been loved. He is a way maker, he is a promise keeper, and he is our Savior. With the help of the Holy Spirit of God, today I want to share a message called The Wondrous Ministry of Jesus Christ, Part 1. And today, I want to look at and zoom in on the miracles of Christ. I believe that his life is so extraordinary because of two different things. First of all, his miracles. So the miracles of Christ. The Wondrous Ministry of Jesus Christ, Part 1. And we're looking at the miracles of Christ today. And next week, we're going to look at the messages. Because of his miracles and because of his messages, I believe he goes down as the greatest figure to ever walk this earth. Today, I want to share a key statement that's going to summarize not just the content of today's message, but also the content of next week's message. Jesus Christ is the greatest person in history because his ministry was extraordinary. Jesus Christ is the greatest person in history because his ministry was extraordinary. Now, today, I want to summarize my message today with this thought. Jesus Christ is the wonder-working, miracle-performing God. Jesus Christ is the wonder-working, miracle-performing God. Now, I know you're probably asking, why was his ministry so extraordinary? Well, the first thought, I'll get the second thought next week, but the first thought is this. The miracles of Christ make his ministry extraordinary. Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, Beethoven, Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein, the Roman Catholic Church, none of them can compare to the miraculous power that Jesus had on this earth. And today I want to look at not every single miracle. Scholars have summarized that, that Scripture records 37 different miracles that Jesus did while he was alive on earth. And John writes, he closes out his gospel that we just read with the simple thought that if, if the writers of history gathered together and wrote down every single deed that he did in 33 years, no book could contain all that he did. So today I want to just look at the five different areas in which he did marvelous miracles. The first one is the very first miracle that he did. 
And if you got your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to John chapter 2. But it is in this miracle that Jesus turned water into wine. The first miracle Jesus performs was not at a hospital. It was not at an orphanage. And it was not at a homeless shelter. It was at a wedding. I find this extremely interesting because throughout all of history, weddings have been the central, most key event ever. And so Jesus shows up at this wedding and he performs a miracle. It was at this wedding in the Cana of Galilee when Jesus Christ made his miraculous power public for the very first time. Jesus, along with his mother and his disciples, go to observe this marriage in Cana of Galilee. Sometimes I do wonder, as I've read these 12 verses over and over and over again, I wonder who exactly was getting married that day. But you know, in God's providence, that is not recorded in Scripture. And I think the reason why is because the purpose of him attending this wedding was not to elaborate upon the couple, but it was to demonstrate his miraculous power that day for the very first time. In fact, I believe that this miracle reveals to us the wonder-working, miraculous power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Once they all arrived at this wedding, Mary informed Jesus about how they had no more wine. And Jesus simply informed her. In fact, he said, woman, in verse number four, look at verse number four. He said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, many people have come to John chapter 2 in this verse, and they have criticized Jesus for calling his mother woman. But I want you to understand that the context simply suggests that it was not a derogatory comment towards his mother Mary. In fact, when you begin to study this passage, and you begin to study another text when Jesus said the same exact thing later in the Gospel of John, you realize it was a term of respect, and the, the very similar term that we would use today is not woman, but ma'am. And the point that Jesus, I believe, is right here is saying, he, he says this. He says, Mary, my time to reveal my miraculous power is not yet. In fact, Jesus was simply pointing out to Mary that he was on the Father's timetable, not on her timetable. And that goes for your life and my life today. We are on the timetable of God, the sovereign, providential God who knows all of history. And I find it interesting that in John chapter 19... When Jesus was, was hanging on the cross, he told Mary that he was entrusting her to the care of John, and he uses the exact same word, woman, or ma'am, that we would use today to her. And then Mary, in this scene, in this narrative of John chapter 2, it tells all these servants to do whatever Jesus commands you to do. And in John chapter 2, in verse number 6, look at this. This verse speaks about how there were six water pots of stone that contained two or three firkins apiece. Now, if you're like me, you began to wonder yourself, what in the world is a firkin? And one firkin is estimated to be nine gallons. So these water pots could have held somewhere between 18 to 27 gallons of water or liquid. And Jesus commanded the servants to go and fill these water pots with water. And the scripture records that they were full all the way to the very brim. No more could enter them. 
And keep in mind, each container had 18 to 27 gallons of water. That's a heavy tub of water. And Christ then proceeds to tell them to draw from these water pots and take it to the governor. And the governor was just simply the person who was in charge of the leader of the event. And, and there, the Bible, I think it's interesting that when I read this situation, when I read this miracle, it is unique than of the, the other miracles because Jesus nowhere touches the water. He nowhere touches the pots. He nowhere takes the bowl or touches the bowl, whatever device they were using to dip from the water. And he does not take the water to the governor. And at some point, I don't know exactly when, and I don't know exactly how, the scriptures are silent on this, but at some point that water has a transformation and turns into wine. And here you know the story that, that the governor says, hey, I normally we have the best at the very beginning and the worst at the end, but you've saved the best for last. John 2, 11 declares that this was the genesis or the very beginning and the, the first time that Christ revealed his wonder-working, miracle-performing power. Now, with that in mind, there's no doubt that you've come across the controversy in John chapter 2. Scholars have been debating for, for centuries, was this grape juice or was this fermented wine? And to be completely honest with you, I don't think we can dogmatically prove either way from Scripture. Sure, we might have our leanings, and, and I think there's a time and a place for that discussion, but I really don't think that is the point of this passage. I don't think the point here is for us to get into our corners and to debate, was this grape juice or was this wine? The point of this passage is revealing that Jesus took water and turned it into something else. That water was put into the water pots, and the governor drank wine. Now, whether this was grape juice or wine, it was still a miracle. Some say that, that it was grape juice, and that would be a miracle if it was turned into wine. And some say it was wine, and it would have been a miracle if it was actually fermented wine. Water to fermented wine or water to grape juice, it is still a miracle. It's not water. That's right, Brother Dave. I'd like to just point out that of all the miracles that Christ did, this was the one most people seem to point out the most. I mean, even unsafe people come to me and say, there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol because Jesus turned water into wine. When I hear people say that, it frustrates me because they don't understand the point of John chapter 2. And they haven't taken the time to study and try to understand the context and what is going on in John chapter 2. First of all, even if it was fermented wine, the Jewish custom was to dilute the beverage with water, making the alcoholic content very minimal. Secondly, in no way, shape, or form does this miracle promote or condone drunkenness. A clear reading of the Old and New Testament reveals to us that Scripture cautions us from drinking alcohol and it condemns from being drunk. Thirdly, the best place for every Christian concerning alcohol is total abstinence. You'll never get drunk if you never drink, and you'll never become an alcoholic if you never consume alcohol. So this passage, to all of my friends out there and to all of my 
foes out there and to any of my family members out there and to anybody else in the world, this passage cannot be used in support of a pet sin called drunkenness. Jesus surely did turn water into wine. And this passage reveals to us that he is the wonder-working, miracle-performing God. The miracles of Christ make his ministry extraordinary. He certainly turned water into wine. But now let me share with you a second miracle about why I believe that, that his ministry was extraordinary through his miraculous power. The second one is from John chapter 6. If you want to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6, it says Jesus fed the multitudes. This is the second miracle. Jesus fed the multitudes. According to Google, TikTok has become the latest sensation for social media. As of the beginning of September 2021, somebody's name that I really don't even want to try to pronounce has become the most followed uh, person and creator on TikTok worldwide with a 123.5 million followers on the short form video app. Can you imagine having over 120 million followers on TikTok? Do you know what TikTok is? Some of you might, some of you might not. It is a social media app where people create videos. Some of them are 10 seconds long all the way up to about a minute long. And what people do is they, they put, sometimes they put helpful information about how to do this and how to do that. Uh, some people have these fail videos where, where you watch people fall down and get hurt. Um, and they're absolutely hysterical. And, and sometimes it's more entertaining to be on TikTok than, than national TV. But then you have people putting all these crazy trick shots from ping pong balls to basketball shots to football throws and everything you can imagine. But I just simply bring this up to just share with you that social media, especially this one in particular, reminds us how mankind has always thirsted for fame. We have. We, for some reason, want all these followers on social media that we've never met so we can, quote, influence them. But I find it interesting that before the help of international TV, before the internet age and sensation of smartphones, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ went viral in the first century A.D. And every single century after that, Till now, Jesus' life and ministry goes viral every single day without the help of the Apple phone or the latest Google Pixel or, or whatever Android you're using. Today, I, I want you to understand this, that, that, that on every single continent since his ascension, his messages that he preached and the miracles that he performed goes viral to every single generation. How did his life gain so much momentum, popularity, and fame? It was his miracles. It was his miracles. Sure, Scripture reveals how God used the prophets and apostles of old to do some mighty deeds and, and to perform some miracles at time, but none of them compare to the, mirac the miracles that Jesus did. They just don't. In John chapter 6, we see that, that Jesus is going away with his disciples up to a mountain, and the Bible says that a large crowd is following him. Jesus had thousands of followers 2,000 years before Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook ever existed. 
And in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, the Bible records to us how, how this great multitude came after him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they observed these miracles that he performed. I mean, they heard about his, his miracle and the wedding in John chapter 2 and the others that he performed. And they couldn't let him out of their sight because they wanted what was next. He was like the old Elvis Presley act. Keep your uh, set short because you always want them hungering for an encore. And so Jesus, in a sense, was doing just that. He goes up to a mountain, sits there with the disciples and begins to talk to them about the upcoming Passover. And then he lifts up his head and he sees 5,000 men plus women and children. Scholars conservatively estimate that it was probably 20 to 25,000 people at least following him that day. I've heard some even say 40 or 50,000 people. Just to give you an idea of how many people that is, if we went to the Berglund Center... Google tells me 10,600 people can sit inside the Berglund Center. So you multiply that by two, and that is a conservative figure of how many people were following him that day. So the Civic Center times two. It's a lot of people. And so as he's there, he looks out, and, and he has this conversation with, with, with his disciples, and he, and he asks Philip specifically, he says, where can we buy bread so all these people can eat? And Philip says, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them. That every one of them may eat a little. Look at John 6, John 6 verse 7. As we read this passage, the word penny worth, I, I thought to myself, what in the wor world is a penny worth? Well, apparently the Greek word for penny is denarius. And one denarius was a day's wage for, for the average laborer. So that 200 denarii, would represent about seven months of wages. This would prove that as they're talking and thinking about this crowd, that seventh month, seven months of wages could not afford to feed all the people. Just imagine two civic centers full of people. How much money would it take you today to feed all those people? Some have estimated around $15,000 is what this figure might have been. We don't know exactly, but... How much do you think it would cost to feed? All I know is it would be a lot. <laughs> then another disciple named Andrew, uh, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up in the middle of this conversation in John chapter 6 and says, hey, there's a little lad here. There's a young man here that has five loaves of barley and two small fishes. And I, I checked this out. I, I double-checked myself in the Greek lexicon. And, 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 and you know what it means in the Greek? It means these five biscuits were from Red Lobster and these, these fish were salmon patties. <laughs> That's exactly what it means in the Greek. And you can quote me on that. Come on, that'd be some good right there. <laughs> anyway, um, Andrew continues to say, but what are they among so many? What are five loaves of barley bread and what are two small fishes for this vast crowd? Well, look at John chapter 6, verse 12. And before we read that, Jesus takes the bread. And before he took the bread, he commanded all the people to sit down. And they all sit down. And he grabs the loaf of bread and he thanks God. And then he distributes it to his disciples. And they distribute it to all the people. And look at John chapter 6 verse 12. This verse sets, sets apart from all the rest. It says, when they were filled, say fill with me. Fill. Say it again. Fill. This word literally means to be filled to satisfaction. So imagine on Christmas day, that, yesterday, were you filled to satisfaction eating your Christmas dinner? 
I hope that you left the dinner table fully satisfied because if you didn't, it was your own fault on Christmas Day. But can you imagine two Berglund Civic Centers full of people fully satisfied with their meal and completely full with five loaves of bread and two fish? That's why Jesus went viral. That's why the life of Jesus spread and spread and spread and spread because he could do what nobody else could do. And there, the Bible says that not only were they fully satisfied, but when they gathered the fragments of the leftovers, the Bible says 12 baskets were received. This passage tells me a lot of things. It tells me, first of all, that God can do a lot with just a little. So you might think your life is insignificant and not very important, but I submit to you, to, do, to you today that your life and everybody's life is important to God, and He wants to use your life so that it could be full of satisfaction and fill the earth with His goodness. And God can provide our needs. Jesus fed the multitudes. This passage reveals that Jesus Christ truly is the wonder-working, miracle-performing God. We've seen him turn water into wine. We've seen him feed the multitudes. But now take your Bible and turn to, to Luke chapter 4. And it is in this passage we read about how Jesus heals the sick. I believe he is the greatest figure of all time because he had power over illnesses. In Luke chapter 4 and verse number 40 Listen to these words. Early in the life of ministry, of, or early in the ministry of Christ, excuse me, the Bible says in verse 40, Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus healed the sick. There are times when we hear about preachers or televangelists who claim to have the gift of healing. And maybe you're like me. I've always been skeptical of those type of people. Because if those so-called preachers and so-called televangelists truly had the miraculous power to heal, why don't they go to the hospital and heal those who are sick? Why don't they go to the nursing homes and heal those who are ill? And why don't they go to orphanages and heal those children who have diverse diseases from starvation and hunger. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He said, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven. He said, there will be people who will cast out demons in my name. There will be people who will heal those who are sick. But they do not know me. I believe Satan has raised up so many phony preachers in these days to discredit the truest preacher of them all, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our healer, and none of his stuff was staged, like some that we've read about and seen on TV. None of it was worked up, and none of it was preplanned. It happened, and it was part of history. In John chapter 9, it's interesting that, that Jesus healed a man who was blind from his birth. The disciples asked him who exactly sinned to make this man blind. Was it himself or was it his parents? And Jesus responded, neither of them. And in fact, sometimes people have an illness 
for their whole life, and some have it for a portion of life, also that God could receive glory through that illness. And that's what we see this blind man doing. Jesus said, but the works of God will be manifest through him in John chapter 9, verse 3. You see, Jesus takes his saliva, and he spits it on the ground, and he makes clay of the spittle, anoints the eyes of the blind man with clay, and commands him to wash it in the pool of Siloam. And the Bible says he was healed. And it caused an uproar. Why did it cause an uproar? As Brother Joel talked about in the Sunday school lesson through the miracles of Christ, that most of his miracles were done on the Sabbath. And they charged him and they said, hey, you have not kept the Sabbath because you performed a miracle. No, 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 that's not the case. I believe Jesus did the miracles on the Sabbath so that he could tell all the Jewish people and everybody in that time period that he is not only King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but he's also the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who created the Sabbath. You see that this, the, these Pharisees were charging him of breaking their Pharisaical man-made laws, not his own laws of the Deuteronomic law. Listen, here's just a footnote. Most of our concepts of these miracles reveal to us that some people are actually physically blind. They might receive their sight in this life, but they may not ever receive their sight. But they will we'll see one day when God calls them home to heaven like they've never seen before. And also, as I think about a blind man being healed, I think about how Jesus can heal us from our spiritual blindness. And today, if you are spiritually blind, if you, are, if you have not allowed Jesus to unveil the flesh of this life from your eyes, he can and he can save you. In Mark chapter 7, we read about how Jesus departed from the coast of Tyre and Sidon and came to the Sea of Galilee through the middle of the coast of Decapolis. And the people brought to him a man who was deaf, who, could, who had also had a speech impediment. They pleaded with Christ that day that he would heal him. Christ took the man aside from the crowd and he put his fingers in his ears, spit and touched his tongue, looked up to heaven and said, be open. And instantly, the man could hear and speak plainly. In John chapter 5, we read about how when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he goes to the place called the Pool of Bethesda. And it was in this place where all these sick people would gather around this pool, waiting for the angel to come down and strike the water so that it would, it would be um, uh, kind of the waves would go. And, and the first one who would jump into the pool, the Bible says that they would be healed instantly. And there was this man who was impotent or paralyzed lying there, and Jesus comes, and he sees them there. I'm, I'm encouraged today, because when we're in pain, he sees us. When we're sick, and think that we have been forgotten, like in a nursing home or a hospital, Jesus is there with us. And Jesus steps in, and, and he begins to say, hey, and nobody's, the guy says, nobody's here to carry me and put me in the water when the waters are troubled. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you just get up and take your bed and walk? And he did. You see, Jesus healed the nobleman's son. Jesus drove out an evil spirit from a man. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick of a fever. Jesus cleansed a man with leprosy. Jesus healed a centurion's paralyzed servant. He healed another man who was, who was uh, descending down from a roof to be healed. He healed somebody with a withered hand on the Sabbath. He cast out many demons, and then those many demons entered into pigs and went into the water. He healed a woman in a crowd with an issue of blood. He healed a man who was unable to speak. He healed many that were sick and as they just simply came and touched his clothes. 
My friends, Jesus is the wonder-working, miracle-performing God. He can heal the sick. He can feed the multitudes. And he can turn water into wine. But now let me share this with you, fourthly today. Jesus had power over nature. If you got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 14. Jesus had power over nature. You see, his ministry was extraordinary because of his miracles. And he had not just power to heal those who were sick and turn water into wine and, and feed the multitudes with five loaves of bread and two small fish, but he had power over nature itself. The elements of nature he could command at his word. You know, mankind has always invented all these different gadgets to make life a little easier. In fact, we've created all these gigantic ships that can sail. We have planes that can take off from the boats and land in the sea and leave from the sea. I found it interesting that the largest ship that was ever built was 1,500 feet long, called the Seawise Giant. If you've ever been on a cruise before or seen a cruise ship, you walk beside it, you literally feel like an ant in, a, in an ant hole. You do. You really do. But we do a lot with water these days. We have submarines that can go down all the way to the bottom. We build dams that can hold back the power of water and control the water flow and give us power and energy. We can surf, we can boogie board, and we can wakeboard on the water now. We can do all these certain things, but the one thing that we've never been able to master is what Jesus could do, and that is to walk on water. In Matthew chapter 14, the scriptures record that Jesus had power over nature by simply walking on the water. If you've ever tried, you will sink like Peter did. Only two people in history has ever been able to do it, and only one of them was able to successfully do it. Peter, the Bible says that when he, they, they, Jesus there, he, he came out on the, uh, he told them to go out into the sea in, Mark chap, in Matthew chapter 14, and there they go out in the sea, and by the time Jesus gets back, they are way out there, and so he begins to walk on water, and they think he's a ghost in the spirit, and they're troubled. And he simply said, do not be afraid, it is I. Be of good cheer. And Peter said, hey, if it's truly you, Lord, then, then let me come out into the water with you. And Jesus said, come. And Peter begins to come out of the ship, and he places his feet on the water, and he begins to walk. And as the, the winds began to blow, he began to become fearful, and he sank into the water. And he cried out for the help for Christ. He said, Lord, save me. And the scripture says that Jesus was right there and grabbed his hand and pulled him up. So many times, this miracle is often used as an inspirational, spiritualized TED Talk to motivate us how Christ has the power to rescue us like he did Peter. Surely Christ can do that. And surely he can rescue us from our sins. But my friends, that's not the point of this miracle. We also use this scene as, as a way to remind us how Jesus, when we take our eyes off of Christ and our uh, and our focus is on something else, that, like the distraction of this world, we will begin to sink into the flesh. While that is true, that's not the point of this miracle. You see, the point of this miracle is to remind all of humanity how Christ has power over nature and can defy even gravity itself. In Mark chapter 4, we read of a similar situation. But this time, Jesus was asleep on a boat. And there the, the storm was raging and the sea, the waves were crashing and beating upon the boat. 
And the Bible says that, that these disciples were afraid, but Jesus was sleeping. And the, the ship was full of water, and so they come and they say, Master, don't you care that we're going to perish in the water from the storm? And Jesus simply rises. The Bible doesn't say he said anything, and he goes out, and he looks out at the, at the, at the sea, and he says, Peace be still. And instantly, the water ceased from the raging, and there was a great calm. Just like the other narrative, we come to this one, and we say that, hey, God can step in, and he can say peace to our trials, and it can be still. And that is true. He can do that. And it is good preaching, I'll tell you. I'll shout amen with the best of them. But that is not the point of Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 is simply reminding us that Jesus has power over nature. You say, why do I know that? Well, it's the reaction of the disciples. They said, hey, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? You see, Jesus Christ truly is the wonder-working, miracle-performing God because he has power over the elements of nature. You see... He can calm the raging seas. He can walk on water. He can make the wind cease. He can bring the rain. He can make the rain stop. He provides sunshine and he gives us snow. He gives us light in the night. He puts the moon and the stars in the solar system and he holds all the atoms and everything in place. He is the one who has power over nature. But now... Perhaps maybe in my mind, the greatest miracle of them all. It's not how he has power over nature. Not how he has pa power to heal those who are sick. Not to be able to feed the multitudes with five loaves of bread and two small fish. And not even, not even just the power to turn water into wine. But the final one I want to share with you is from John chapter 11. Jesus can raise the dead. Did you hear me? Jesus can raise the dead. He can walk up to a cemetery and say, rise, and every dead man, woman, boy, and girl can rise from that cemetery. And as one preacher said, the only reason why only Lazarus came out of that grave is because he said the name Lazarus. But in John chapter 11, we're reminded of what Paul spoke about, how death has a sting. And the one thing I've learned is that the older we all get, the more the life that we live will sting with sorrow. And the sting of death can be bitter and cold. However, Paul reveal, reveals to us that, that Jesus gives us victory over death itself. 1 Corinthians says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The life and ministry of Christ reveal to us that his miraculous ability to resurrect those who are dead. In John chapter 11, we read that power. We read how Jesus steps in on the scene and raises Lazarus from the grave. But my favorite verse here is verse number four. Would you look at verse four? John 11, verse four, it simply says, when Jesus heard that, that is, he heard about how Lazarus was sick. The Bible says that, that he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. I know it can be hard to perceive this, but God is able to use any situation or tribulation 
even death itself, to bring glory to himself. Even in the hour of sickness and death, the Son of God can manifest his magnificent, glorious his splendor and power. Jesus here tells us that he waited two extra days before visiting Mary and Martha. After those days transpired, he informed the disciples that it was time for them to go to Judea again. And they said, hey, hey, are you going to go back to Judea after all the crazy stuff that happened? It's like, yes, we're going. And so once they arrived, he discovers that Lazarus had passed. And he'd been dead for four days. As other people were comforting Martha and Mary, as soon as Martha heard Jesus was coming, she rushed to him before, she, before he got to her house and he wanted to talk with her. And instantly she said, if you had been here, if only you had been here, Lord, you could have healed my brother. But I know whatever you say to God, it will be done. And Jesus said these words. He said, thy brother or your brother will rise again. And Martha looks at the Lord and says, I, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection day. But Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ. I believe you are the Son of God who should come into this world. Later they come to the cemetery, the very place where Lazarus was laid. And the scriptures say that, that in fact, John chapter 11 records to us the, the shortest verse in the English Bible, verse number 35. If you say you have trouble memorizing scripture, well, you can memorize this one, two words. Jesus wept. There, Jesus is at the cemetery. He's at the burial place of his friend. And the Bible says earlier in verse number three, that, or excuse me, earlier in verse number five, that he loved this family. And he sorrowed in this grief. And he cried. There's nothing wrong with crying. There's nothing wrong with grieving. And here Jesus is grieving. And the crowd looks at him and they say, Behold how much he loved this man because he's weeping and crying. And then he commands for them to remove the stone. And, 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 and Martha says, Lord, by this time he stinks. <laughs> He's been dead for four days. And Jesus looks at Martha and says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the very glory of God? And in that moment, the stone was moved and Jesus lifts up his voice to God and he prays to the Father. And once he prayed, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And in that moment, a man who is medically pronounced dead lives again. What's even more miraculous is that, sure, we've heard the stories in the hospital where, where somebody was pronounced dead for maybe a couple minutes or, or maybe even an hour or so. This man was dead, the Bible says, for four whole days. And he lives again. Bound hand and foot with grave cloths. Lazarus came out of that grave. John eleven forty five 45 tells us that, that many of those Jewish people who were there that day, because they witnessed this, they believed he was the Messiah and the Son of God. This miracle reminds us that Jesus has power over death and can raise the dead. But that's not all. 
He performed this miracle a few other times when he raised Jairus' daughter and the Nain widow's son. But then one other time, after they take him and they laid him upon that cross and beat him and battered his body and, and there nailed him to those pieces of wood and there they, they set up him high there on Golgotha's hill and there he was pronounced dead and placed in a tomb. And the two Marys come to that place where he was laid and they witnessed that the tomb was was empty and the stone was rolled away and the angel said do not fear he said i know you've come to see the place where the lord lay come in and see he is risen from the dead jesus christ is the wonder working miracle performing god but maybe you're asking yourself a question that i asked do we believe that he still performs miracles today do you believe that he's still a miracle-performing God like he was then? Well, you better. If, you've, if you know the correct answer, it's yes. But I want you to know that, that sometimes the miracles Christ performs today is a little different maybe than what it was when he was on this earth. You see, every time a baby is born, it is a miracle from God. Every time a, a surgery is successfully performed, it is a miracle from God. Every time someone is cured of cancer or any other disease, it is a miracle of God. Every time a drug addict overcomes their addiction, it is a miracle from God. Every time a woman is rescued from a life of sex trafficking, it is a miracle from God. Every time an alcoholic enters into a sober lifestyle, it is a miracle from God. Every time a marriage is rescued, it is a miracle from God. Every time a young couple chooses life instead of abortion, it is a miracle from God. Every time a family receives a food basket during hardship and trials, it is a miracle from God. Every time somebody is able to overcome the sting of grief and death, it is a miracle of God. Every time somebody chooses life after having suicidal thoughts, it is a miracle from God. Every time a broken relationship is mended, it is a miracle from God. Every time a well is dug in other regions of the world for those who have no water, it is a miracle from God. Every time an orphan finds a home, it is a miracle from God. Every time you gather around the dinner table and you have food to eat, it is a miracle from God. Every time a loved one goes home from the hospital, my friend, it's a miracle from God. Every time somebody walks away from a car accident when they should have died, it is a miracle from God. Every time a person reads God's word, it is a miracle from God. Every time somebody hears the good news of Jesus Christ and repents from their sin and puts their faith and trust in him alone, it is a miracle from God. So you ask me, do I believe in miracles? You better believe I do, because Jesus Christ is the wonder-working, miracle-performing God. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live.
about me I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith Keep the faith, keep the faith Keep the faith, keep the faith